So good morning, everyone. And it's a real pleasure to be with you this morning. I think it's uh, exactly a year ago that I was with you um, last year. And that was when we were just, uh, we had just experienced that big flood. Um, and so we could be thankful of how uh, God has spared us from that so far this year. Um, it's a, a pleasure for me to, to bring you God's word this morning. And shall we first have a word of prayer? Dear Lord God in heaven, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Your word is inspired by you and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that we may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Your word is what you use to bring people to faith. It is the preaching of your word that you use to work in people's hearts that they may call upon the name of Jesus and be saved. Bless us now with your spirit, O God. May your spirit use the preaching of your word this morning to call us to faith and to mold us and shape us, to make us into the kind of people you want us to be. We pray this in the name of our Savior and Redeemer. Amen. Now our scripture reading this morning is taken from Matthew chapter 26, and we'll be reading verses 30 through 46. So Matthew chapter 26, and begin reading at verse 30. And I'll be reading from the uh, ESV version. Um, so Matthew chapter 26, verse 30. And what you're about to hear is the very word of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? 
Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So, leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Thus far, the reading of God's word, but I encourage you to keep your Bibles open and follow along. Now, congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever felt burdened? Have you ever felt like you were carrying such a load that if just one more thing were added, it would cause you to collapse? Have you ever cried out to the Lord, asking him why he has placed such sorrows upon you, and perhaps also asking him why it is that he doesn't remove some of those sorrows from you. If you have ever felt this way, know that there is a Savior who can sympathize with your sorrows, for he too has experienced deep distress. Now, this morning we have before us a passage which shows us the the weightiness of the burden that Christ had to bear in order to save his people from their sins. And as we look at this passage, there are a couple of questions that we should be thinking about. What does the passage say about Jesus, and what does it say about his disciples? And so as we work through it, we'll divide the sermon into three points. We'll look at the the pressure that is placed upon Jesus. We'll also look at the priorities of Jesus. And we'll consider how the, the privileged failed Jesus. In fact, we'll look at that last one first. That's what we'll begin with, of how the the privileged failed Jesus. And now, as with any passage, it's good to to know the context of what, what time is it and what's happening around this time. And so, it's Thursday evening of Passion Week. That is, that last week of Jesus' life before his his death and resurrection. And it is on this night that Jesus and the disciples, they're gathered in an upper room of a home there in the city of Jerusalem. And on this night, Jesus has shared the Passover meal with his disciples one last time. And it's on this night that Jesus washed his disciples' feet, thereby showing them an example of how they are to love and serve one another. It's on this night 
that Jesus tells his disciples that he is going to be betrayed. And he tells the disciples that all of them are going to desert him on this night. And Matthew tells us that Peter and the other disciples, they all adamantly deny that they would ever do such a thing. Well, after the meal and after those revelations by Jesus, Jesus and the disciples, they, they leave the actual city of Jerusalem. And they, they go out and they go to um, an olive grove that's situated on the slopes of a mountainside, the Mount of Olives, and that's found on the, it's located on the east side of the city of Jerusalem. And they come to a place that's called Gethsemane. And I'll talk more about that place in just a little bit. But the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus often went to this place with his disciples. It was a kind of garden. It was a quiet place, a place where Jesus has come on this night to pray. And so Jesus goes to the garden with 11 of his it's only now because Judas has left. He's gone to the religious leaders to carry out his act of betrayal. He goes the 11, and upon arriving, he tells eight of the disciples to just wait there while he goes a little further on in order to pray. And the Lord takes three of his disciples with him as he goes deeper into the garden. And the three are, of course, Peter and James and John. Three men who have had the privilege of being with Jesus at special times. For example, they were the only disciples in the room with Jesus when Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. They were the only disciples in the room with Jesus when Jesus brought Jairus' daughter back to life. And they were the only ones with Jesus when Jesus transfigured on a mountain in the northern region of Palestine. And that happened just a few months before this. So Peter, James, and John, they were leaders amongst the disciples. And Jesus takes them along a little farther because he wants their support and he wants them to be witnesses so that they can report what is going to happen on that night in the garden. So these three, they form kind of an inner circle for Jesus. And they were three of Jesus' closest companions, his most intimate friends. Is why their, well, it makes their actions that night, or you could say even their inaction that night, so surprising and so disappointing. Jesus takes those three a little farther into Gethsemane, and then as he is about to, to separate himself a little bit farther from his three close friends, the Lord commands them to keep watch and to pray. And Jesus is very, he's, he's deeply distressed, the passage tells us. He longs for the support of his three close companions. And now these disciples, 
they should have already recognized the need to keep watch and to pray. It was just a few hours, maybe just one hour before this, that Jesus had said to them that he was going to be betrayed and that he would be given over into the hands of, of his enemies and that the disciples would desert him. They should have been praying that God would give them strength to, to enable them to remain faithful, just as they had promised. They did promise that, you know. They had promised to remain faithful. John and James, a few chapters before this in Matthew 20, they had said to Jesus that they could drink the cup that Jesus would drink. And Peter, of course, he had boldly said that no matter what happened, he would stick with Jesus, no matter what, even if he had to lay down his own life. These men were overconfident and underprepared. And so, in the garden, on this night, these men could not even support Jesus by staying awake. Now, it shouldn't have been so hard for them. They were fishermen, after all. They had spent many a night out in their boats, staying awake all night, casting their nets, trying to get some fish. But they did not recognize the danger that was around them. They did not see the perilous times that and thus, they did not step up in the way that Jesus had called them. Now, before we get too hard on these three men, we need to ask ourselves, are we not often like them? Jesus calls us to watch and pray. We are to pray that we may fight temptation. But how are we doing with that? Do we not often still fall into sin? Do we recognize the perilous times around us? Do we see the attacks on the Lord, the attacks on his word, and on the created norms that are revealed in those pages of scripture? Are we watching and praying that we may stay alert and discerning. We need to be like the men of Issachar who are mentioned in 1 Chronicles 12.32, that they were men who served their king, King David. And it is said of them that they understood the times and they knew what Israel must do. Well, Peter, James, and John, they may have meant well, when Jesus comes back to them, we read of no response. They don't make up any excuses for their falling asleep, but nor do we see a change in their behavior. They just were not able to remain faithful. They were thinking of their own needs, and so they fell back asleep. And when the critical moment came, and those soldiers arrived, the sheep did not stay with the shepherd. They ran 
in order to save their own skins. Jesus had been longing for their support. He had been longing for their companionship, and yet when that moment came, they left him alone. And so the disciples' failure, their failure to, to keep awake, their failure to pray with and for Jesus, their failure just added to the weight that Jesus felt. And that brings us now into our second point and the, the pressure that was placed upon Jesus. As Jesus comes into Gethsemane, he is feeling burdened. Various are the words used in some of the different Gospels and different translations tell us that he is grieved and distressed, that he is grieved to the point of death. He is sorrowful and troubled. His soul is overwhelmed. Jesus feels burdened, like there is a tremendous weight upon his soul. And indeed, even the very location where he is at reflects what is going on in, in his heart and soul. The Lord is in Gethsemane. Now that name, it comes from two Hebrew words. Got, which means a place for pressing, and shemanim, which means oils. So you see, in, in this time that Jesus was on earth, they would pick olives, and these olives would be crushed to a pulp in an olive crusher. And the pulp would, well, that was done by having a, a stone that was kind of like a wheel, and it would roll over the olives and crush them into that pulp. And then that pulp would be taken, and a huge stone of enormous weight would be placed upon them, and it would squeeze the oil out of the pulp. And this rock was often shaped like a pillar, and it was called the Gethsemane stone. So thus, Jesus being in Gethsemane, it creates a vivid picture of what Jesus was experiencing spiritually and physically. Jesus felt the weight of what he must do. He is feeling the weight of what it is going to take to be the Savior. He is feeling the weight of what it will take to save his people from their sins. It's not just the burden of what he's going to experience physically, the, the beatings, the lashings, the having the nails driven through his hands and feet. No, it's, it's also the burden of carrying the sins of men. Christ must carry the weight of the wrath of God against sin. And Jesus is so distressed that as he walks away from the disciples, he, he falls on his face and he cries out to his Father in heaven. Luke's gospel tells us that he went a stone's throw away. So that's maybe a hundred feet or so. And though he has separated himself from the disciples a little bit, the disciples 
can still hear his prayer. He is in such anguish that he is crying out to his father. It's not a whispered prayer. It could better be described as as a loud lament, as a shouting cry. And in Hebrews 5 verse 7, it says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Jesus pleads that if possible, this cup may pass from him. Now, what cup is he talking about? It is the cup of God's wrath. The Bible often talks about God pouring out his wrath upon the sinful. In Psalm 69 and 79, the psalmist asked that God pour out his wrath upon the wicked in order to punish them. In Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 14 and 15, the Lord says, I will recompense them according to their deeds and according to the work of their hands. For thus the Lord, the God of Israel, says to me, Take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. Jesus knows the holiness of God because he is God. And because of that holiness, Jesus knows what anger God has towards sin. Hebrews 12, 29 tells us that our God is a consuming fire. And Jonathan Edwards said it well when he he said in that famous sermon that it is a dreadful thing for a sinner to fall into the hands of an angry God. Now, Jesus is not a sinner. He's the sinless Son of God. But 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. Jesus has taken our sin upon himself. It is because he put himself in the place of his people that he must now bear the weight of the wrath of God against sin. And Jesus is bearing that weight already here in the Garden of Gethsemane, and it's putting immense pressure on him. It's crushing him. Consider these verses we read already this morning. We heard from Isaiah 53. And that's Isaiah's um, prophecy of the suffering servant. And just listen to how some of these phrases describe what Jesus is going through in Gethsemane. It says in Isaiah 53, He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely... Our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Jesus knew the scriptures. He knew what it said about the cup of God's wrath. He knew what a dreadful drink that would be. And 
as he comes into this garden, he's thinking about that cup. And it overwhelms him. And so he falls on his face and he cries out to the Father, No! Not that cup! Abba! Father! Please! If it be at all possible, let this cup pass from me. Just like that Gethsemane stone that was coming down and crushing those olives, so the wrath of God is coming down, pressing down on Jesus and crushing him physically and spiritually. So much so that the Gospel of Luke tells us that drops of blood come out like beads of sweat from Jesus and they they fall to the ground. And what makes this all the more difficult is that Jesus must carry this weight alone. He brought his disciples along. Even those three superstars, Peter and James and John, but they are incapable of sharing that heavy for Jesus. It's striking that in the Gospels, the way that writes the sweetness of the disciples, their eyelids were heavy. So here is Jesus. He's experiencing far more than what disciples are going through. He's carrying far more. And yet the three disciples, his three closest disciples, they cannot even carry their eyelids to help them stay awake. This points us to one of the doctrines of the Reformation, that it is by Christ alone that we are saved. People are incapable of adding any help, any works or merits of their own to bring about their salvation. It is by the work of Christ alone that we are saved. And it is such a heavy work that Jesus even asked the Father if this cup may pass from him. Now, we should not misunderstand this request. It's it's not that Jesus is trying to renege on the the promise, the covenant that he made with the Father before the foundation of the world, that he would save God's people. Nor is it suggesting that Jesus is not all-knowing, and therefore not God. No, what this request does is it points to, to the humanness of Jesus. He is a true man, and he knows that in his humanity he will be forsaken by God when he is on the cross. It, it is a dreadful weight that he must bear. It overwhelms Jesus to the point of death. And so he asked if there could be some other way. But then Jesus utters those beautiful words of submission. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And this brings us into our final point and the priorities of Jesus. Now, on this night, when so much was coming at the disciples, 
they are thinking of their own needs, their own priorities. They, they pursue the need for sleep and their need for security. And so they deserted Jesus when that critical moment came. The Lord, however, even though he has far more weighing down on him than what those disciples are experiencing, he does not think of himself. He doesn't think of his own will, his own desires. No, he, he submits himself to the will of his Father. Notice here the progression of the Savior's statements of submission. That when he first leaves the three disciples and goes off a little ways to pray, Jesus is asking if there can be any possible way to do this differently, may the cup please pass from him. The second time Jesus comes before the Father, there is more of an acceptance that the cup will not pass from him. And each time, the Son of God adds that he will submit to the Father's will. Now, fulfilling the will of the Father has always been Jesus' purpose, his priority throughout his life on this earth. As a 12-year-old, when his parents brought him to Jerusalem, and then his parents thought he was lost. But no, he was in his father's temple. That was his priority, to be explaining the scriptures. And later, when he was grown and beginning his earthly ministry, Jesus stated, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And the Apostle Paul he wrote to Timothy saying that Christ came to save sinners. Now, while Jesus is in the garden, Satan and the powers of darkness, they are working hard on Jesus at this time. They're trying to distract him, to divert him from his Jesus priorities. Satan is trying to get Jesus to think only of himself. And he's trying to get Jesus to, to give up. Now, the devil has used this tactic before. In the beginning of Jesus' ministry, when he was being tempted in the wilderness. But as it was in the wilderness, so it is now in the garden. Jesus remains unswerving to carry out the Father's will all the way to the end. Thus, at the end of the prayer time, having been strengthened by the appearance of an angel, the Gospel of Luke tells us, Jesus is as resolute as ever to finish the work that he has been sent to do. As Jesus prayed that night in the Garden of Gethsemane, his work on Calvary and his death on the cross, they were never really in question. It was why he became incarnate. He submitted to the Father's will, and he carried it out to the end. Thus, he says with his last dying breath upon the cross, it is finished. The price was paid. Atonement had been made. Jesus did what no one else could do. 
he bore the cup of God's wrath. So wrapping it up then, as we considered this passage this morning, there were two questions we needed to answer. What does it say about Jesus? And what does it say about his disciples? And for the, for the disciples, Matthew brings out that the disciples have fallen asleep and failed Jesus at a most critical time. But Matthew also shows us of how Jesus has endured intense agony and suffering. And as we think about the burden that Christ bore during this time in the garden and on the cross, we need to ask ourselves and remember, why did Jesus do this? Well, beloved, he did it for you and he did it for me. He did it for all those who place their trust in him. And so it should cause all of us to, as we think about what Christ has done, to say, oh Jesus, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the burden that you bore when you took the cup of God's wrath. And as we contemplate the weight of Gethsemane that Jesus bore because he carried all of our sins, it should also cause us to say, oh Jesus, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry for all my sins that caused you such distress and sorrow and pain. Oh Lord Jesus, forgive me. Wash me. Cleanse me. Lord Jesus, save me. If you've never prayed that prayer, I urge you to do so now, today. Christ is calling you. He's calling you to trust in him, to believe him. He died for you because he loves you. And if you have prayed that prayer before, then this passage should drive you to worship. We think of all that Christ has endured for us. It should cause us to want to worship him. It should, should fill our hearts and our mouths with praise. And it should make us want to, to rejoice, to sing with joy and, and gladness. It should fill our Fill us with a desire to worship and exalt him, to live our lives in gratitude to him for all that he has done for us. Amen. Shall we pray?